Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare series. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's also a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's a couple of current news stories in the infectious disease category? Jeremy, as you and I have discussed often on Fixing Healthcare, artificial intelligence is making massive inroads in medicine. Harvard Researchers are now using it to predict the next set of new COVID strains. And in this way, rather than simply identifying infections once they arise, this approach provides insights into the future and it repairs the medical world for what lies ahead. And that means new vaccines can be produced in anticipation of the next viral wave rather than after it arrives. In the constant battle between immunity and viral mutation, the generative AI program identifies where the current antibodies are effective, and it assumes that this is where the next set of mutations are likely to occur, since that will produce the greatest competitive advantage for the virus. And assuming the approach is successful, the same AI tool could be applied to battling the influenza virus, even HIV. What's the second COVID-19 story? Jeremy, a second news story is the high price Pfizer will be charging for the drug Paxlovid. This is the medication patients, particularly those at high risk, use when they contact and contract COVID-19. And of course, it's these individuals for whom the medication has the greatest benefit. We know that for unvaccinated patients, their risk of hospitalization and death falls 90% when the drug is taken soon after becoming infected. In contrast, little benefit is seen when vaccinated, low-risk patients take the medication. The cost that Pfizer has set will be $1,390 for the standard five-day course, which is three times higher than what the $529 the government currently pays. And that doesn't make sense. First, if the drug company is making a profit at less than half the current price, why should it jack it up at all? And given that insurers are likely to pay far less than the sticker price, why penalize the uninsured who can't afford the hefty cost at all, or stick it to insured patients through higher out-of-pocket costs. Why not just set it, let's say, at $650 for everyone? In the U.S., drug pricing is both exorbitant and completely opaque. There's no logic to how Pfizer set this retail price. The reality is Pfizer won't spend any additional dollars on R&D. And most likely, it'll only accrue a limited amount of added overhead since the biggest pharmacy chains and health systems, they will still account for most of the new prescriptions, just as they currently do. The story is a great example of why letting the government negotiate prices is so vital for our nation. Of course, Pfizer likes to talk about all the things it's doing for patients, 
offering coupons to offset out-of-pocket costs for people who can't afford their medication and working to get their drug put into a tier one level for insurance formularies. These things do lower patient costs, but they don't do anything to lower the overall costs of drugs. And as a result, they drive insurance premiums higher for the next year. As we've pointed out on our Diving Deep program, the consequences of this price manipulation is lower wages for workers and even higher out-of-pocket costs for patients in future years. Jeremy, healthcare is the only industry I can think of in which when utilization of a product drops by 50%, and that's what's currently happening with Paxlovid, a decline from 7 million patients taking it last year to a projected 3.4 million this year, that's it's the only industry in which the manufacturer actually decides to raise the price in order to maintain revenue and profits. Speaking about COVID, I heard there was new research on long COVID and its cause. Can you update listeners on what researchers have learned? Scientists are slowly unraveling the mystery about this very perplexing problem. The leading theories on long, on long COVID have focused on the myriad of symptoms resulting either from residual viral particles as the culprit or long-lasting inflammation triggered by the viral infection itself. The newest research indicates that inflammation resulting in low levels of serotonin could be the actual mechanism of action through which these difficulties arise. And that would explain why brain fog is the most common symptom that patients report. Let's go another level deeper. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania have found that whatever is the initial trigger, the mechanism by which the process works is by depleting the circulating levels of serotonin, which then reduce the serotonin in the brain, impairing memory and other cognitive functions. Low serotonin triggered by circulatory and circulating inflammatory proteins would also explain the diverse set of symptoms that patients experience, including excessive blood clotting, and nerve dysfunction to multiple organs of the body, including the heart and lung. The elevated inflammatory proteins leading to decreased serotonin could result from either the remaining viral material or the persistent immune response. Supporting this hypothesis of inflammation leading to reduced serotonin was the finding that the more severe the patient's symptoms, the lower the level of circulating serotonin in their blood. Connecting the dots, Inflammation impacts the GI system, and that results in reduced absorption of a specific amino acid called tryptophan. And this is a vital precursor of serotonin. And the reduced levels of serotonin, therefore produced by this elevated immune protein status, impacts different organs. The research lays to rest the theory, or at least the hypothesis, that the symptoms that patients report might simply be psychosomatic in origin rather than chemical. And the findings align with research from other laboratories, which have identified abnormalities in the body's T-cells, which are part of the inflammatory process, and decreased cortisol levels in people with long COVID. And assuming inflammatory proteins and low levels of serotonin are the mechanism producing the symptoms, the research offers potential new treatments, which haven't even been considered in the past. What's new in the rest of medicine? Jeremy, the biggest story has to do with the cost of employer health care insurance. 
It rose at the fastest rate since 2011. The 7% increase that patients and employers will experience next year translates into a price of $24,000 for a family and $6,575 for individual coverage. The good news is that with the labor market remaining tight, most employers aren't passing along the higher premiums to employees, and they're not trying to restrict access to doctors and hospitals. But if the economy cools, that could be the result in the future. The driver of the major premium increase is thought to be higher wages for workers. Healthcare is one of the most people-intensive industries in the nation. You may remember in the book Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, that I pointed out that in healthcare, there's usually a delay in cost increases compared to general inflation. This is due to the multi-year contracts which hospitals strike with labor unions. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. But of course, with the new contracts being signed currently, healthcare inflation will continue for at least the next few years. That sounds very problematic. Are all the dollars spent justified? Jeremy, you're asking the four, soon to be $5 trillion question, whether the rising wages we've seen this year are necessary or simply a reflection of a tight labor market. That's controversial, with labor unions and health systems differing in their perspective. And doctors and nurses in the U.S. earn nearly twice as much as their counterparts in other countries, which is either justified or excessive, depending on your perspective. And then there are the drug and device manufacturers who charge double in the U.S. what peer nations pay. But the most contentious issue of all may be deciding how much of the medical care provided in our country is or isn't appropriate. As an example, the Lone Institute, a not-for-profit healthcare research organization, last month calculated that an unnecessary coronary stent is placed in a Medicare patient every seven minutes. This costs the taxpayers $800 million a year. These stents are small mesh tubes designed to hold the blood vessel to the heart open. But as logical as inserting them might seem in patients with partial blockages, multiple research studies have concluded that the clinical outcomes aren't any better than giving inexpensive medications to treat the patient's symptoms. And stents have been shown to have major complications, including generating blood clots, damaging the kidney, and injuring blood vessels around the body. What's most interesting is that the research showing the lack of positive impact from stents isn't new. In 2007, the first major story on this controversy was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the leading academic research journal in healthcare. And it concluded, quotes, in patients with stable coronary artery disease, percutaneous cardiac intervention, PCI, which is a technical term for placing a stent, did not reduce the risk of death, myocardial infarction, or other major cardiovascular events when added to optimal medical therapy. Skepticism abounded among the cardiologists, who were the ones, of course, who placed the stents. So two years later, 2009, a second trial was completed, and the results were once again published in the England Journal of Medicine. It found there was no significant difference in the rates of death and major cardiovascular events between patients 
undergoing prompt revascularization and those undergoing medical therapy. And last year, a third article, once again in the New England Journal of Medicine reported that revascularization by percutaneous cardiac intervention did not result in lower incidence of death from any cause or lower incidence of hospitalization for heart failure compared to medical therapy. I can't think of a better studied question with more intense peer review as consistent and definitive a conclusion as this one. And yet, according to Lone, one in five stents placed in Medicare beneficiaries in the United States aren't indicated. And this overuse isn't restricted to stents. It impacts almost every specialty and reflects the fee-for-service means by which doctors and hospitals are paid. As Charlie Munger, that's Warren Buffett's long-term partner said, quote, show me the incentives and I'll tell you the outcome as you're going to get. Phrased differently, pay people based on volume and the volume will rise even when patients don't benefit. What else is happening in healthcare overall? Jeremy, although healthcare costs have been rising for decades, most Americans have been pleased with the medical care they personally receive. But that's changing. Based on a recent consumer survey, the majority of Americans, regardless of their insurance coverage, now report their satisfaction as inadequate. Among the 150 million Americans with employer-based coverage, only 38% were satisfied, with 62% saying that significant improvement was needed. And for Medicare enrollees, satisfaction was slightly better at 44%, but still 56% said that improvement was needed. In the past, most Americans saw the healthcare system as flawed, but their own medical care they thought was excellent. The growing difficulty in assessing care, the limited amount of time that doctors spend with each patient, and the rising out-of-pocket expenses, these appeared to be eroding patient satisfaction in the United States. Robbie, a listener wanted to know what's happening with telemedicine now that the pandemic is a year in the past. Jeremy, unfortunately, as COVID fades, so virtual medical care is dissipating. You remember that prior to 2020, telemedicine use was maybe in the low single digits nationally. At the height of the pandemic, it rose to 69%, with many of the temporary measures to facilitate its use, including allowing cross-state care to be provided. The numbers have once again come crashing down. The most recent data from July 2023 show that telemedicine utilization fell across the country. Already down, it continues to plunge to 5.1% of medical claims in the U.S. And of those visits, mental health accounted for three quarters. And the discrepancy between what clinicians charged for virtual visit and what insurers paid was massive. For a 20 to 30 minute visit, physicians billed $215. Insurers reimbursed only $105. And in most cases, the patient had to make up the difference. Robbie, it seems like unaffordability in medical care is a growing reality. What about all the pilot programs that were implemented as part of the Affordable Care Act? Jeremy, here the results aren't very encouraging either. The Congressional Budget Office released its findings on the various programs designed to lower Medicare costs 
to innovations in care delivery and payment. Since 2011, 49 pilot programs were tried to make medical care delivery more efficient. But rather than reducing costs to Medicare by the expected $2.8 billion, the programs in total raised costs by $5.4 billion. Based on the results to date, the Congressional Budget Office updated its forward-looking projections for the decade of 2021 to 2030 from what had originally been expected to be a net savings of $77.5 billion to now an increase of $1.3 billion. And my best guess is that it's likely this projection is once again overly optimistic. If there's a silver lining to the report, it's that what is called Medicare Shared Savings, the dollars accountable care organizations have saved, these dollars are not included in the total cost-saving report since this part of the program isn't inside the formal Medicare innovation work. And here, the reduction in costs have been significant. However, the number of programs participating in this program, which involves capitation to a group of doctors and hospitals, caring for a population of patients, participation has been limited. And that's the United States dilemma. On one hand, we know the capitation at the delivery system works. But on the other hand, bringing together all the specialties with the right number of clinicians in each, that's complex and contentious. And as a result, few physicians participate. And we know that the incentive program in the fee-for-service world, it doesn't succeed with most of these types of approaches ending up with higher, not lower costs. It's why the transformation healthcare requires, that's more likely to come from outside of medicine than inside. Robbie, a listener knew you were a dedicated runner and wondered about the mental health benefits of exercise. What can you report? Jeremy, as the listener notes, I am biased when it comes to the virtues of exercise. However, a recent study from the Netherlands published in the Journal of Affective Disorders confirms the positive impact that running has. The researchers found their running program was equal to antidepressant medicines for the treatment of patients with anxiety and depression. Moreover, the exercise approach led to a more positive impact on health, including body weight, heart rate, and blood pressure. On the other hand, the researchers found that while the benefits of exercise were better, adherence was higher in people who used the medication. This study confirmed prior work. Overall, the researchers included 141 participants with depression and or anxiety. Their average age was 38 and 58% of them were women. The participants were given their choice. They could take a commonly prescribed antidepressant medication or participate in a 16-week group-based running therapy program. In total, 36 participants elected to take the antidepressant medication and 83 preferred running therapy with the remainder having no preference and being randomly assigned to one group or the other. The running group met two to three times a week for 45 minutes of outdoor exercise at each session. At the end of the 16 weeks, 82% of those individuals taking the medication were still on the drugs, while for those enrolled in the running therapy arm, only 52% were still active. The one thing this experiment didn't test 
was whether a combination of medication and running therapy would be better than either alone. And of course, the fact that the participants could elect which treatment they preferred meant that the results might be more of a correlation than reflect actual causation. In many ways, the results of the study mirror American healthcare. Lifestyle medicine has been shown to be incredibly valuable and safe, and yet proper diet, frequent exercise, and taking the time to meditate or do yoga, that's just harder than taking a pill once a day. And as a result, American medicine focuses on drugs as the first line of treatment rather than finding ways to help people improve through alternative solutions. Robbie, what other research is there on the value of exercise? Jeremy, a provocative study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine found that aerobic exercise, including walking and cycling for 30 minutes three times a week, can be just as effective at improving erectile function in men as Viagra. And that the men who benefited the most were the individuals with the greatest erectile dysfunction. The researchers identified 11 well-controlled, randomized studies in the literature with a total of 1,100 men. Of these, 600 had been assigned to the experimental group, and they had 30 to 60 minutes of exercise three to five times a week, depending upon the exact treatment protocol of each research study. And they were compared to the 500 who received no treatment using a standard 30-point scale. Those participating in the exercise program improved erectile function by an average of two to three points in individuals with mild erectile dysfunction and by five points in those with severe erectile dysfunction. And for listeners to make a comparison, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors, which are like Viagra, have been found to improve erectile function by four to eight points on the same scale, not particularly different. Cardiovascular exercise has been shown in hundreds of studies to produce a positive impact on nearly all the organs of our body. So it's reasonable that it should also have a similar impact on sexual function, which is dependent upon normal arterial inflow. This study offers promise to men who for a variety of reasons, including not being able to tolerate some of the side effects of ED medications, aren't candidates for any of the available current drugs. Robbie, you know that as a father, I'm interested in medical news related to children. What's new? Jeremy, a new study from the Journal of the AMA quantified the relationship between social determinants of health and kids' physical and mental health. Rather than correlating each external factor with child development, it combined a total of 84 variables, and it studied it in 9- and 10-year-old children. and was able to place each child into one of four different groups. The goal of doing so was to be able to better customize the healthcare approach provided to each. And the results, they weren't surprising, but they highlighted the massive impact that factors outside of direct medical care have on children. The variable studied related to socioeconomic status and concluded that factors like greater income disparity, lower home values, and lack of health insurance correlated with more mental health issues, increased suicidal behaviors, lower cognitive performance, and poorer physical health. While for children at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, the traditional office-based model of pediatric care might be sufficient. 
for kids in what is the author's labeled economic deprivation, broad investments need to be made as part of pediatric care if medical outcomes are to be improved. And in a second study, possibly related to this one, it was noted that from 2021 to 2022, the U.S. infant mortality rate rose by 3%. Prior to 2021, although the U.S. was the worst in infant mortality among 11 peer nations, with an overall rate of death twice as high as other countries, at least we were improving. This recent worsening in infant mortality goes along with the much higher maternal mortality in the U.S. compared to other nations, and it's another stain on our country's approach to healthcare. And as I noted, it wouldn't be surprising if the reason for the growing failure doesn't tie to the worsening socioeconomic factors which the previous study correlated to poorer health outcomes. What we see with both maternal mortality and infant mortality is that black individuals have a mortality rate that is double that of their white counterparts. We know that the maternal mortality goes up when there's insufficient prenatal care, high stress, and a range of other problematic social determinants of health. And this is driving the mortality rate in the United States and putting women and children at major risk. Robbie, in a previous episode, we've talked about the two options for Medicare enrollees relative to coverage. Now that open enrollment season is here, what's happening? Jeremy, as you reference, it's likely that for the first time in history, more people will select the Medicare Advantage plan rather than traditional Medicare coverage. For listeners, in brief, Medicare Advantage is offered to seniors through an insurer and it provides lower costs and expanded benefits like optical and dental in return for the enrollee accepting a narrower network of providers. And rather than the dollars being paid, being based on the volume of services delivered, it's paid on a capitated basis with a single fee given to a group of doctors and hospitals based on the age of the enrollees, the diseases they have, and the outcomes provided. Keep people healthy and prevent heart attacks, stroke, and cancers, and you do better financially, and of course, so do the patients. You might think that there would be a clear set of data on the superiority of one Medicare program versus the other, but there's not. Critics of Medicare Advantage attacked the program for its aggressive marketing to seniors, the prior authorization requirements it frequently includes, and the high profits these programs earn. Defenders point to the superior clinical outcomes that enrollees achieve, and the program's focus on prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease, and the financial protection it offers to enrollees against catastrophic health problems. I doubt that these two viewpoints will be reconciled, which makes it hard for seniors to be sure which program is best. In general, if being able to see any doctor you want is a high priority for you, traditional Medicare offers nearly unlimited freedom. But if you're comfortable with a more limited choice and want added benefits and lower costs, then MA is likely to be the best. Robbie, we've talked before about what is euphemistically called the Great Resignation. Do we have data on its magnitude? Jeremy, we do, and it is concerning. In 2021 and 2022, 
about 145,000 people left the healthcare workforce, with physicians accounting for approximately half. In total, 71,000 doctors, 35,000 nurse practitioners, and 15,000 physical therapists, as well as 14,000 physician assistants and 10,000 social workers all quit the healthcare profession. The biggest driver was COVID-19. Putting those numbers into perspective, we lost 6% of the physician workforce, 9% of PAs, and 11% of physician physical therapists, either as a result of their retiring or simply switching professions. And in medicine, we saw the greatest declines among 8,700 internal medicine doctors, 7,800 family practitioners, and 6,000 clinical psychologists. I think the reason for this resignation was multiple. The first reason was the reality that healthcare is a dangerous profession, particularly during times of an infectious disease pandemic. The second reason they left was that COVID-19 disrupted their lives. It increased stress and produced burnout. And finally, for individuals who had contemplated retirement, but they never saw the right moment, the pandemic was a clear opportunity. The biggest question now is what will happen given that COVID is, in, is for the most part behind us? Will these individuals return to the medical field and help address the shortage of clinicians? Or will they stay retired or stay in their new jobs, allowing the problem to persist and potentially become worse? Several listeners wrote to us to tell us how much they appreciated the updates on the various vaccines. What can you tell them this month about the one against COVID? Jeremy, as is usually the case, the vaccine updates are positive. In a study published in the Journal of the AMA, pediatric researchers found that the risk of newborns dying or having to be admitted to the neonatal ICU in the first month of life was significantly lower when their mothers were vaccinated against COVID. And this protection lasted for at least six months after the child's birth. Whether the improved outcomes reflect vaccination, protecting the mother during pregnancy, which would diminish the risk of intrauterine developmental problems, or whether it was active immunity protecting the baby against infection following birth can't be sorted out. But the risks of problems when the pregnant mom catches COVID and doesn't have immunological protection may have contributed to the rise in infant mortality that we discussed a few minutes ago. It's also possible that the lower mortality, however, isn't from the vaccine itself. Instead, it may reflect the fact that women who choose to be vaccinated tend to be from higher socioeconomic groups and to be better educated. And as we've just discussed, they often receive superior prenatal care. That, of course, is a problem in trying to ascertain cause and effect in many parts of medicine, figuring out what is causative and what results from a third factor can be impossible in research efforts to separate. In total, the researchers looked at data on 142,000 infants of up to six months of age born to mothers who either were vaccinated or hadn't received any vaccine doses. In total, about 60% of the women had received at least one dose of the vaccine. The children of vaccinated moms were 53% less likely to die during the study period and 14% less likely to be admitted to the NICU. The results were consistent with other studies on maternal vaccination 
against flu, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, RSV, which is respiratory syncytial virus, and others. Vaccinating the mother benefits the unborn child. And at a minimum, these studies confirm the safety of vaccinating all pregnant moms. Robbie, what else is new in the infectious disease world? Jeremy, you may remember that in addition to the vaccine against RSV, that there also is now a monoclonal antibody that can be given to young infants should they be unprotected and develop the infection. Now the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is recommending rationing of this monoclonal antibody due to limited supply. It wants the drug reserved for kids under the age of six months and for those with significant associated medical problems. These are the babies at highest risk to die. And this drug is in shortage at the same time that the rate of infection is starting to rise in the United States. Making matters worse, in addition to the shortage of the monoclonal antibody, the new vaccine may be difficult to obtain because the timeline for production is tight and the price tag is high at $495 per dose. And we don't know yet how many insurers will agree to cover the cost of vaccination. But it is clear that both the vaccine and the monoclonal antibody are highly effective at protecting neonates and reducing both the likelihood of hospitalization and the chance of a young child dying. For women who currently are pregnant, the easiest way to protect the baby after birth is for the mom to be vaccinated against RSV sometime between the weeks 32 and 36 of gestation. That will generate the antibodies needed between now and March, which is when epidemiologists predict the risk of infection will be the highest. The reason so much attention is given to the youngest children when it comes to RSV is that this is when the danger is the greatest. At less than a month, a child's airway isn't fully matured and susceptible to life-threatening infection and respiratory insufficiency. Globally, RSV is the second leading cause of death in children under the age of one. In the U.S., between 60,000 and 80,000 kids require hospitalization each year, with approximately 200 to 300 of them dying annually. The virus itself, however, is so ubiquitous that by the time kids reach age two, nearly every one of them has been infected and developed immunity. And in older children, the disease is more similar to a cold and rarely proves fatal. Now that we've talked about RSV and COVID, what do we know about the flu vaccine? Jeremy, here the answer is also very positive. Like the coronavirus that causes COVID, the influenza virus continually mutates. However, the rate and degree of change for the influenza virus is even greater year to year than for these other viruses. As such, scientists must guess in advance what's about to happen once the flu season starts. And they can get a good view of the accuracy of their prediction based on data from the Southern Hemisphere, where winter arrives six months earlier than the United States. And this year, it's looking pretty good for what appears to be an excellent match. It appears that compared to a typical year, hospitalizations from the flu are down 52% in these Southern Hemisphere nations. That would be a great relief for the U.S. with the triple endemic staring us in the face. And the likely efficacy of the vaccine increases the reasons why everyone should get a flu shot along with their COVID vaccine sometime this month or the latest in early December. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, a few years ago, I was in India and I met with leaders from the Gates Foundation. 
They were there to see if they could find ways to diminish maternal mortality, a problem that afflicts many poor nations and is a rising concern in the United States. I wanted to see what I could learn. They asked me, what percent of births in the U.S. were by cesarean section? I told them, I thought it was between 25 and 30 percent. They then asked me how many C-sections were medically indicated rather than scheduled for the convenience of the obstetrician or the patient. I told them that I was not an expert in this area. It was outside my level of clinical experience. But if I had to hazard a guess, maybe half. They then said of these 10 to 15% cesarean sections, how many of them were life-saving? Once again, I didn't know but I hazard a guess of a third. But they pointed out that if that number were only 10%, then a baby or a mother or both would die for every 100 live births. That's a massive number. And for much of India, they said, the nearest hospital capable of doing a C-section is too far away for the mom to get there in time should a problem arise. They were trying to develop an alternative solution how where cesarean sections could be provided other than the hospitals that were too far away to meet the needs of the populace. I thought of that conversation when I read about hospital and delivery service closures in Alabama. Their entire poor counties are beginning to look like rural India without a birthing hospital within 50 to 100 miles. Should come as no surprise that Alabama has the third highest infant mortality and the fourth highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. But more than that, I realize how little foresight our country has about how to provide quality medical care to millions of Americans who find themselves in what is often called maternity deserts. I understand the economics of keeping a low volume delivery service open and the challenges for rural hospitals in low socioeconomic areas. But the answer can't be to ignore the issue and pretend that nothing bad will happen. It's inevitable that healthcare will be different in rural areas. In Iowa, that it has to be different than it is in the university town where you live. But there's a bar below which the impact on people is too great to ignore. And I think in many places of the United States today, we're getting close to that line. We need to figure out new models of who can provide medical care and in what facilities can they do so in order to save people's lives. If not, I predict rather than the mortality rate for moms and infants being twice as high in the U.S. as in other nations, it will rise to three, four and then five times as great. And that is a tragedy we have to avert. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.